ومن أحسن قولا ممن دعا إلى الله وعمل صالحا وقال إنني من المسلمين Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Alhamdulillah, we praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who knows what the hearts conceal and what the tongues will not reveal, the one to whom all shall appeal and in front of whom the believers kneel. And we send salat and salam upon the one whom Allah sent as rahmatan lil'alameen, the one whom even his enemies used to call al-sadiq and al-ameen, the one who will be our intercessor, yawm ad uh, Today is Tuesday and we have our regular uh, Q&A. And given the fact that Ramadan is around the corner, it is literally next week, insha'Allah ta'ala, uh, I wanted to spend some time discussing a number of questions pertinent to the tarawih, especially some issues that have come in light of the fact that we will not be having uh, jama'at in our masajid. And so today, insha'Allah ta'ala, we'll be doing three questions related to tarawih. The first of these questions, what is Salat al-Tarawih? And where did it get its name from? And what is its relationship to Qiyamul Layl? So the concept of Tarawih and when it was introduced and what is its relationship to the night prayer or Tahajjud or Qiyamul Layl? So realize that Tarawih is the name given to the Qiyamul Layl or to the Salat al-Tahajjud during the night of Ramadan. So when we say Tahajjud or when we say Qiyamul Layl, this is the night prayer. And the night prayer is the night prayer that is done any time from Salat al-Isha up until before Salat al-Fajr. And the night prayer or the Qiyamul layl or the Tahajjud is one of the most blessed prayers after the Fard prayer. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands our Prophet sallallahu in particular to pray the Tahajjud prayer. وَمِنَ اللَّيْلِ فَتَهَجَّدْ بِهِ نَافِلَةً لَكَ عَسَىٰ أَنْ يَبْعَثَكَ رَبُّكَ مَقَامًا مَحْمُودًا The Maqam al-Mahmood, the highest Maqam, is linked to our Prophet sallallahu praying the night prayer. وَمِنَ اللَّيْلِ And during the night, فَتَهَجَّدْ بِهِ Pray the Tahajjud prayer. نَافِلَةً لَكَ It is a nafil, it's not a wajib. It is something that is supererogatory. It's not obligatory on you. By the way, some ulama did say that uh, it was obligatory for our Prophet ﷺ only and not for the rest of us. And so when Allah is saying nafila, He is not intending that for the Prophet ﷺ it is nafil. Some ulama said that it is wajib for our Prophet ﷺ only because Allah says, قُمِ اللَّيْلَ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا Stand for the night except for a little bit of the, of the night when you sleep in. The point being, tahajjud is uh, sorry, tarawih is tahajjud in Ramadan. Tarawih is qiyamul layl in Ramadan. When we do the nightly prayers in this blessed month, it is called tarawih. And the concept of qiyamul layl or tahajjud is something that we should all familiarize ourselves with because all of the blessings of tahajjud apply to tarawih as well. And uh, in one hadith, our Prophet said, it is, a hasan, it is a hasan or authentic hadith, alaykum bi qiyamil layl. I command you to pray, or meaning I encourage you to pray at night, فَإِنَّهُ دَعْبُ الصَّالِحِينَ قَبْلَكُمْ Because it was the custom of the righteous peoples before you. So, it was the custom, number one, of the righteous peoples before us. Number two, وَقُرْبَةٌ إِلَىٰ رَبِّكُمْ And it is something that will bring you close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number three, وَمُكَفِّرَةٌ لِلسَّيِّئَاتِ It forgives the evil deeds. It expiates the evil deeds. And number four, وَمَنْهَاتٌ عَلِ الْإِثْمِ And it prevents you from doing other sin. When you pray tahajjud automatically, it acts as a barrier from doing other evil deeds. So four beautiful blessings are mentioned for Salat al-Tahajjud. Number one, it is the custom of the righteous, before and after. You want to be from the elite, you want to be from the salihin, you want to be from the krem de la krem, you want to get an A in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it must come with Salat al-Tahajjud. And number two, 
it brings you close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number three, it forgives your past sins. And number four, it is going to be a barrier between you and other uh, sins. And in the hadith in Tirmidhi, the famous hadith, our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam described some beautiful places in Jannah that are so beautiful that the palaces are made out of glass or they're made out of uh, crystal that you can see inside and outside. And uh, they said, Ya Rasulullah, who are those beautiful places, the highest the ghuraf meant for? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Sallam said, Liman Atab al Kalam wa Atam al Ta'am wa Adam al Siyam wa Salla bil Lady wa Nasuniyam. To those who do four things, who speak well all the time, they're not vulgar, they're not evil, and they give food to the hungry, and they fast, and they pray at night when people are asleep. So this is some of the many, many blessings of Qiyamul Layl. But in Ramadan, Qiyamul Layl takes on the highest status. Why? Many reasons of them. The famous hadith that we all hear and Ramadan is around the corner so let's refresh ourselves with it. It is Muttafaq Ali Bukhari and Muslim. Our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that whoever fasts Ramadan, Iman and Wahtisaban, all of his past sins are forgiven. And whoever stands at night of Ramadan, وَمَنْ قَامَ Ramadan, And the Qiyam here means praying Taraweeh. The Qiyam here means praying Tahajjud in the nights of Ramadan. So whoever Praise in the nights of Ramadan, extra prayer. That's the Raweeh. Whoever prays that Qiyam, all of his previous sins are going to be forgiven. Therefore, dear Muslims, Taraweeh is no joke. Taraweeh guarantees, if you repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a forgiveness of all of the previous sins that you have done. It is one of the main mechanisms to forgive all of our sins. So let us make it a niyyah from now, every one of us, that unless we have an excuse, we are sick, or our sisters, they might have that time of the month. Otherwise, other, other than that, let us make it the intention that every single night of this month that is going to come, without exception, we shall do some extra nafil, extra extra prayers that we typically don't do and that is the name given to Salat al-Taraweeh. Now, who instituted Taraweeh? Where did it begin? It is narrated uh, in the uh, uh, authentic books of Hadith and Sahih Bukhari and others that our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam one day in the nights of Taraweeh, one night in the nights of Taraweeh, he prayed uh, in the masjid on his own. There was no institutionalized Taraweeh. He prayed on his own. And some people were also praying. And so when they saw him pray, they prayed behind him. It was not announced. It was not something that the call came out, the adhan was given. No, he happened to be praying tahajjud, qiyamul layl. The people behind him saw him pray. And so they just decided to join. News spread the next day. And more than double it is said the people came. So the masjid was all very much uh, full. And when the Prophet ﷺ came out to pray, and he prayed uh, the Qiyamul Layl, so the people behind him also prayed. Then on the third night, the news spread across the whole city, and the masjid was jam-packed. The masjid was full of people. Then the Prophet ﷺ did not come. And the whole night went and they, he did not come. Then he came out at Fajr, and the masjid was still there. And he said to them, I knew you were here. I didn't, I wasn't sleeping. I was praying to Hajjad al-Humma. I knew you were here. But the only reason I did not come out and lead you was I was worried that it might become obligatory. I was worried that either Allah Azza wa Jal would make it obligatory and then it would have been difficult for you or some other people would assume that it's obligatory. So as a rahmah for you, as a mercy for you, I did not come out and pray. And that was the last Ramadan of his life sallallahu alayhi wa and he passed away. And therefore the concept or the institution of praying was just established and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused him to come back to himself. Then during the time of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu an, nothing happened. The people would just pray in the masjid on their own. During the first year of Umar's time as well, it is said that that would happen. Perhaps in the second year, some say in the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu an, that it is reported in the Sahih Bukhari from Abdurrahman ibn Zaydin al-Qari that he said one night, myself and Umar ibn al-Khattab, we walked outside and it was one of the nights of Ramadan and we went to the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and we saw groups of people praying on their own or in small jama'at. Somebody's praying on his own, somebody's praying with one imam, somebody's praying with a, a small group and they're all in the masjid, helter-skelter, split up. And so Umar ibn Khattab said, I feel that we should combine all of these people upon one qari. 
And he then decided to choose Ubay ibn Ka'b, who was one of the main Qurra. Our Prophet wasallam said that whoever wants to learn the Qur'an, let him learn from one of four. And number one on the list was Ubay ibn Ka'b. So Ubay ibn Ka'b is considered to be the Qari of the Sahaba. And many blessings are mentioned about Ubay. I have a life story about Ubay. You can listen to him. Listen to that online. And uh, then the next night, Ubay was leading and the entire congregation was in one jama'ah. And Umar al-Khattab was very happy. And he said, Ni'mal bid'atu hadihi. What a great new thing that we have done. And this is a deep theological controversy. What did he mean? Etc. I've given another lecture about that. Uh, I don't like to, uh, it's not something I like to do to encourage you to listen to, to other lectures, but I don't have time to go into all of these other tangents. I have given an entire lecture about the reality of bid'ah or innovation between the various philosophies and schools out there. And so you can listen to that talk. And this narration of Umar al Khattab plays a very crucial role because he said, What a great bid'ah is this. What did he mean? How has it been interpreted? That is a different topic. But for now we understand what he is saying is that yesterday everybody was helter-skelter. Today everybody is combined in one jama'ah. What a great thing that it is. And then he said, Those who are sleeping right now are better than those who are praying. And then the narrator himself said he meant those who will wake up at the end of the night are better than those who are praying it now. Now we're going to come back to this point uh, over here. Now this is the first year. Eventually, books of, uh, of, of history mention to us that Umar ibn Khattab would appoint two imams for the men and they would alternate back and forth. And then he would also eventually, uh, when the sisters could not hear, so then he appointed an imam for the sisters. Remember, there's no microphone, there's no you know, loudspeaker, so the sisters are all in the back, they cannot hear. So he appointed another imam for them. And for the men, he would also have alternating, you know, either one day, one day, or some say, some raka'ah, some raka'at over here. And when he instituted taraweeh, he instituted it upon what the Prophet himself used to do, as Aisha says, that he, he never prayed more than 11 rak'at a night. And so it was 8 rak'at of taraweeh and then 3 rak'at of witr, that is a total of 11. However, towards the end of his khilafah, uh, after a few years, towards because Umar al-Khattab was the uh, khalifa for 10 solid years, remember. And so towards the end of his khilafah, sometimes in the middle of his khilafah, he changed Eight and he made it 20 raka'at with witr to make it 23. Why did he do this? Uh, the famous Maliki scholar Al-Baji from Andalus, the great uh, Maliki scholar Al-Baji, he said the wisdom why Umar al-Khattab did it from 8 to 20 is to make it easier for the people because the eight rak'ah would be so long that the people would bring their sticks and they would stand to get support. It would get so long. And so he made it 20 to make it easier for them. Smaller bits, they can rest and whatnot. And uh, the, the, when he made it 20, they also began another habit or a custom that uh, goes back to the Prophet ﷺ. What is this custom? Aisha says that the Prophet ﷺ, The Prophet ﷺ would pray four, then he would take a break. Pray another four. And she said, don't even ask how beautiful and long they were. Beautiful and long. That's the point of taraweeh. Then he would take a break. Then pray another four, two, two. Then take a break. Then he would pray three rak'ah witr. So from this, in the time of Umar al-Khattab, they derived a custom or a habit. And that was after every four rak'ah, two, two. After every four, they would take a break. And this break or this rest in Arabic, it has a word, and that is tarwiha. Tarwiha means uh, an interlude. Tarwiha means a break. And the plural of tarwiha, taraweeh. And so taraweeh means multiple interludes or multiple resting breaks. That's what the meaning of taraweeh comes. And this is why the taraweeh prayer was called taraweeh. And the earliest person I could find, FYI, who, who said this was the famous Hanafi Imam al-Sarakhsi in his Kitab al-Mabsut. Uh, he says that Imam Abu Hanifa explained why they called the taraweeh. And he mentions this point that they would uh, uh, rest after every four rak'at. And Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, passes away in the year 150 Hijrah. So he's talking 
about what he heard from his teachers who are the tabatabi'un uh, uh, and they are learning from the tabi'un and the sahaba and so this notion of taraweeh being that which breaks uh, into various after every four this is something that goes back to this name taraweeh now the people of Medina began praying this 20 raka'at and why 20 by the way it does not appear that there's any particular reason or wisdom why Umar al-Khattab went to 20 rak'at. It's just a number that was more convenient. Uh, perhaps he wanted to double to 16. They go 16 is, I don't know. We're just assuming. Nobody knows why it was 20. But Umar al-Khattab did institute the number uh, 20. And this custom then spread to Mecca. From Medina, it started obviously because the Caliphate was in Medina, Umar al-Khattab lived in Medina. It then spread to Mecca. And within a few years or generation maybe, at the very max a generation, the people of Mecca would do something else. SubhanAllah, this is what happens when you are in Mecca. That after every four rak'at, during that interlude, that break, you know we called it taraweeh, means the tarweeha or the breaks. After every four rak'at, there would be that break. And so people began standing up and doing tawaf in that break and then coming back to continue the taraweeh, okay? Now somebody can say, how can they possibly do tawaf in a break? And we respond that realize that when there is no rush and no crowd, it is very easy to do tawaf very quickly. And subhanAllah, I mean, you know, I have done um, more umrahs than I can count. And literally, may Allah, alhamdulillah, may Allah accept more than a thousand umrahs I have done in my life. And there have been times that I have done a tawaf in less than 11 minutes. I have timed myself that at times, you know, these days it's almost impossible to, well, right now it is empty. May Allah bring the crowds back. We miss those crowds. But when I would go and it would be crowded, I would miss my times when I used to go as a student and I would go in the middle of the season and I would do it at 3 a.m. or something and it was absolutely dead empty. And you could kiss the black stone and you could do tawaf in 11, 12 minutes walking at a moderate pace. So this is the taraweeh. Now the people of Mecca regularly began doing tawaf after every four raka'at. Subhanallah. When the people of Medina heard, we don't know exactly when, but estimate around 100 hijrah, 120 hijrah. So this is going back and forth. The people of Mecca and Medina are competing with one another for good. When the people of Medina heard this, they decided because they cannot do tawaf, what should they do? They decided they're going to increase the number of raka'as of taraweeh. And so, they decided to pray, instead of 20, a generation after Umar al-Khattab, they decided to pray 36 raka'at. They added 16 raka'at and then 3 to make it a total of 39, almost 40, like they wanted to almost double it. So 39 raka'at they would begin to pray with uh, witr. And that's what we find uh, Imam al-Shafi'i saying that uh, Zafarani asked Imam al-Shafi'i uh, about uh, the taraweeh. And Imam al-Shafi'i said, رَأَيْتُ النَّاسَ يَقُومُونَ بِالْمَدِينَةِ that somebody, the famous scholar Zafarani asked Imam al-Shafi'i, what do you think about taraweeh, how many raka'at? Imam al-Shafi'i said, I saw the people of Medina praying 39 raka'as. We explained 36 plus 3, 39. They, they, there was 36 taraweeh. And I saw the people of Mecca praying 23 raka'as. And there is no harm in whichever position you want to uh, follow. And Imam al-Shafi'i also said that uh, if they lengthen the qiyam and they make the sajdas small, that is good. And if they make the qiyam, the qiyam here means the recitation. If they recite very long surahs and they make the sajda short, that's good. And if they recite smaller surahs and they make the sajdas long, that too is good. But I prefer the first. I prefer for taraweeh that the, that the recitation is long and the sajdas are uh, short. So this is the uh, opinion about taraweeh, where it comes from, not the opinion, sorry, the meaning of taraweeh. By the way, it's not the only meaning. Um, some uh, scholars of the past also said that the term taraweeh comes from the people of Mecca, not Medina, that this tawaf that they would do, they would call that the interlude. And so from the people of Mecca, the taraweeh. And anyway, the point is that both of these terms go back to that rest and interlude, the rest from the long qiyam. So from the long qiyam, they would rest by doing tawaf. 
subhanAllah, those were, the, those were the days. We rest by just leaning back and lying down. They would rest by getting invigorated and doing tawaf, subhanAllah. And uh, one of my teachers, uh, uh, Sheikh Salman Al-Auda, may Allah Azza wa Jal free him from the dhulm that he is currently undergoing in jail. But um, Sheikh Salman Al-Auda also said that I also have a, a psychological interpretation of taraweeh. It's not historical. He said taraweeh also can come from the phrase arihna. Uh, 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 which means to find comfort from the phrase of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, arihna biha ya Bilal, that bring comfort, O Bilal, through the salah. So uh, Sheikh Salman said that the taraweeh is one of the greatest comforts of Ramadan. It brings comfort to our soul. And so it is called taraweeh because we find peace in it. Now, that's not a historical interpretation. It is a psychological one. Historically speaking, the naming was done in the end of the first or the beginning of the second century, not by the Sahaba, not by the Prophet ﷺ, but by the students of the Sahaba or maybe even their students and early scholars, Imam al-Shafi'i and others are using this term uh, taraweeh. No problem over here. Now, uh, Imam al-Shafi'i explicitly said, I found the people of Medina praying 39, I found the people of uh, yeah, Mecca praying 23, and whichever you want to do is fine. And this has been the standard position throughout Islamic history. Dear Muslims, please do not begin, especially at this time of COVID lockdown and things are already tense, please do not revert to the very petty issue of 8 versus 20. Subhanallah, from a historical perspective, it is non-existent. This controversy did not exist throughout the ummah. It was begun by one scholar of the last generation. May Allah bless and forgive him. A passionate scholar of hadith, very zealous but very unique as an interpretation. And he began claiming that uh, to pray 20 rak'ah is an innovation or a bid'ah. And as Shaykh ibn Uthameen, my teacher, said that whoever says that to pray more than 8 is a bid'ah, that person himself is saying a bid'ah because no one before him ever said this in Islamic history and that is very true. This interpretation that taraweeh must be a certain number of raka'at, this is wrong because taraweeh is not a fard salah, it is a nafil salah. You want to pray more, you want to pray less, you want to pray 20, you want to pray 36, you want to pray whatever. It's not something that Allah Azza wa Jal has legislated. True, our Prophet is his own custom and habit. He would pray eight raka'ah plus three. Some have added two, which is the introductory. So um, when he would wake up at night, our Prophet would pray two very quick raka'ah just to begin the, the taraweeh or the, the qiyam, we should say. This is any, any day, not just in Ramadan. Then he would pray eight raka'ah. And Aisha said, don't even ask me how beautiful and long they were. Then he would pray three raka'ah. Uh, but he didn't tell us. In fact, when the companion came and said, Ya Rasulullah, how do I pray the Qiyamul Layl? He said, Pray mathna mathna fa'idha khashith al-subh Pray two raka'ah, two raka'ah When you think that it's about time to pray fajr Then stand up and pray witr So this hadith is explicit And this has been the position Of pretty much the entirety of the ummah For the last 13 and a half centuries Up until one particular shaykh or alim comes along And again, يعني, may Allah reward and forgive him and, and bless him for all the good that he has done But still, everybody is human And he had a position that went against uh, uh, Pretty much every else, And because of this, and this great sheikh, he began a, a movement that became very popular across the globe. And this movement then began saying to pray eight is, is the only thing possible. To do more than eight is a bid'ah or an innovation. And this is uh, frankly without any scholarly merit. And I'm being gentle when I say that. Uh, there is no scholarly merit in that position whatsoever. This is something that you look at historically. Pray whatever you want to pray. But the more important thing about the quantity is the quality. Please do not discuss back and forth. If somebody says that it is bid'ah to pray 20, say, Zakallah khair, make sure you pray the 8 as the Prophet and prayed, end of story. Don't worry about the quantity, worry about the quality uh, more than this. Now, the, 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 the point being therefore, pray as much as you want. It's a nafil salah or a sunnah salah. Umar ibn Khattab clearly instituted 20. Whoever wants to pray 20, no problem. Uh, and the Prophet clearly used to pray 
uh, 8 plus witr, that's 13. Whoever wants to do that, no problem. Please do not make this a point of any animosity. Both positions have historic legitimacy, even though the one who wants to follow the Prophet's uh, position, more importantly than the number should be the quality. And the reason why Umar al-Khattab did 20, remember, was to make it easier. You know, you have a thousand people praying, two thousand people praying. Not everybody can spend the entire two hours. People have to leave. People have to come in and out. So when you have shorter rak'ah, it makes it easier for the congregation. Therefore, both have their uh, positions and inshallah, there's no haraj in either one that is uh, done. Uh, the other issue comes now that suppose in uh, regular times we had the taraweeh prayer in our masjid. Suppose in regular times we have the taraweeh prayer. Is it better to pray with the jama'ah or is it better to pray at home? Now again, this is when we have the choice. These days there is no choice. Um, and this is again a, a, a difference of which one is better. Every scholar said both are permissible. Every scholar in Islamic history said whichever you want to do it is fine. But now scholars differed which one is the better of the two. And generally speaking, the Hanafi school and the Hanbali school and the Maliki school, sorry, the Hanbali, the Hanafi and the Shafi, excuse me, not the Maliki. Generally speaking, those three said it is better of a sunnah to pray with jama'ah, even of Imam Ahmad as typical has multiple riwayat, the Hanbalis know what I'm talking about. Uh, and the Maliki madhab was the one madhab that was very clear and they said that praying at home is better, afdal, uh, for uh, the one who's able to do that. Otherwise, if he's not able to do that, then he can pray in the uh, jama'ah. And uh, the reason why the Maliki said this was that the default is that sunnah prayers and nafil prayers are done in one's privacy and between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you should do it as long as possible. When you're doing it in public, you have the problem of people looking at you, people, your niyyah might be corrupted. Uh, you have the problem of your, your basically, if you want to do longer, the imam wants to do shorter. Uh, also timing, because all of the madhab say when taraweeh is done, it should be done early in the night because you want to make it easy for the people. And yet the Prophet himself encouraged us to pray at the end of the night. So we have to look at ideal and we have to look at minimal. And the minimal is to pray at any time and the easiest is right after Isha. And that's why across the Muslim world, Taraweeh is done right after Salat al-Isha because not everybody can wake up at 3 a.m. at 4 a.m. and pray Qiyamul Layl. But that is the real and the best time of Qiyamul Layl. And that is the time when as our Prophet said, Allah Himself comes down and He asks, who is wanting my forgiveness? I shall forgive him. Who is asking me? I shall give him. Who is demanding of me anything? I shall give him what he wants. That happens في ثلث الليل الأخير in the last one third of the night. So there's no question that that is the better time to pray. But taraweeh to make it easier for the ummah is in the beginning of the night. And uh, in my humble opinion, Allah knows best, this question does not have a blanket answer. It's a case-by-case basis. If a person is going to find better humility and better khushu' and better ibadah, praying in public, listening to a beautiful Qur'an, praying you know, in the routine, then that is better. And if the person has the himma, the fortitude, the courage, a person has the, the, the desire to pray a longer prayer in the middle of the night, at the end of the night, then there is no question that praying alone in your house, taraweeh prayer in the middle of the night is the best. And the reason I'm saying this is because now, dear Muslims, we don't have this choice. This choice is thrust upon us. Now we are all praying in our homes. So subhanAllah, in fact, for some of us, this might be the best taraweeh of our lives if we discover the joy of actual tahajjud. That having been said, dear fathers in particular and family people in charge of the families, do realize that there is some responsibility for your family and children as well. And so try to do something if your children are of age and they're not going to spend the whole night awake or uh, get up in the end of the night. At least do something with them in the middle of the night, in the beginning of the night, so that this thing is is done. That some taraweeh is prayed uh, is prayed in the house. Also uh, realize as well that uh, leading the taraweeh prayer, the taraweeh is a nafil salah. And so uh, firstly, according to most of the madhabs, a child can lead the nafil salah. Some of the madhabs have been stricter and said that uh, uh, that uh, for the fard salah, you cannot have a child lead. Child meaning what is mumayyah. So there's ghair uh, balig, 
so there's a child that's a toddler, and then there's a child that is sinitamiz, and mumayyaz means they can understand. Like imagine a seven-year-old. The average seven-year-old understands, I need to do wudu, I cannot break my wudu, I have to pray in a proper manner. A two-year-old would not understand these things. So obviously a toddler is too young to lead anything. But there's something called sinna tamyiz. And tamyiz is that a child understand is cognizant, right? Definitely the few years before puberty. So puberty, let's say it's 12 years old, 13 years old. Definitely the 10 year old, the 9 year old is old enough to understand what is haram and halal, how, what breaks will do to go and do will do again. That is called sinna tamyiz. When does it begin? It varies from child to child. There are some children at the age of 5, they fully understand. The point being you want somebody who knows how to do wudu and who knows when wudu breaks and who knows to pray salah in a serious manner, that is called sinu tamiz. And since taraweeh is a nafil salah, it is not a fard salah, therefore you can have a child lead by all of the four madhabs, no problem. You can have a child lead. Why do I say this? Because in many households, some of our children have memorized more Quran than us. Some of our children are going to the tahfil school and they've alhamdulillah done 5, 10, 15 Jews with better tajweed than the parents. And so this is a good opportunity to encourage these youngsters to lead the uh, salah. Now, uh, uh, a, a, a girl can only lead other females in salah. And so if you have a hafidah or or a young girl that is doing hiv, she may take her mother and her sisters and she may lead them in the uh, salah, no problem. And she will stand in the same row as them, not in front of them. And uh, a boy can lead both boys and girls in the uh, salah. Uh, and this is something that is well known. There's a famous hadith of uh, Amr ibn Salama. It's actually a little bit, um, uh, a little bit uh, funny in its own way. That Amr ibn Salama says that the tribe that I was, so a very beautiful hadith is Sahih Bukhari. It's very long. I'm going to summarize it in my own words. That Amr ibn Salama says that I was a young boy Boy, you know, six, seven years old, and the and the, the tribes would go back and forth in our village, and we heard of Islam that way. We were not in Medina; he's in a, in a small village, and we heard of Islam that way. And these tribes, the Muslims, would come in and out, and I'd started memorizing the Quran from them when they're going through and back and forth because I was the youngest; I had a good memory. I memorized the Quran even not as a Muslim. Eventually, my father accepted Islam after the conquest of Mecca, and. Uh, my father went to the Prophet in Medina. He came back with this commandment that at every time of the salah, the adhan should be given. And then the one amongst you who knows the most Quran should be the imam. So uh, Amr says, uh, and Am- Amr says that they looked around, they did an exam, they quizzed everybody, and they discovered I knew the most Quran because. I was memorizing from the uh, travelers. And these are all new Muslims now, the tribe. But since he used to interact with the Muslim community, since he would sit with them and listen, look at them, pray, he memorized surahs from the Quran. So he said, they found me to be the, the one who knew the most Quran, even though I was six or seven years old at the time. So they made me their imam. And I was a poor child. I didn't even have full clothes. I just had an upper garment that would come on top of me. And when I would go into sajda, my back would be exposed, right? Because he was poor. When you're poor, you are. Now, if he didn't even know, he should have actually put it on his uh, uh, waist, but he doesn't know he's a child anyway. So he's a six, seven-year-old. And so I went into sajda, and my back, yani literally the back, you know what I'm talking about, was exposed. And so a lady screamed out from the back, and she said, Oh people, cover the behind of your imam, right? Some lady screamed out, right? Cover the behind of your imam. And so the men came together after the salah and they purchased for me a brand new cloak. Amr says, it was the happiest day of my life at that time. And I was only six or seven years old. Now, the hadith is very nice and cute and funny and whatnot. But what it shows us is that Amr, during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, this is happening. Amr would lead his tribe in salah because they didn't know any Quran and he had already memorized a few surahs and so they made him their imam. The point being, I'm just mentioning that on the side, the point being that pretty much all of them, there is no, there is no issue for a child leading the salah as long as the child understands the rulings of salah. And what that means is that in particular, there should be an element of seriousness. The child should not be joking and laughing. There should be a, a cognizance and awareness of wudu and of what breaks wudu and, and, and the arkan of prayer and you know even the basics of sajda. So at least teach them even at that time and then he may lead the, the family in salah, no problem. Also, dear Muslims, realize, and we're still on the first question by the way, the point of finishing the entire Quran during taraweeh, 
by unanimous consensus of all the scholars of Islam, it is not a requirement. It is not a requirement. It is not a necessary part of taraweeh. Now, uh, in some madhabs, they say that it is encouraged and fine. Uh, in the Mudawwana, uh, the famous Maliki book, uh, uh, Sahnoon, the, the student of Imam Malik, uh, he said, I asked Imam Malik about finishing the Quran. Imam Malik said, finishing the entire Quran during the Qiyam of Ramadan is not Sunnah. Uh, and so uh, he would say, Imam Malik, and Imam Malik died 179, he's very early, and he's talking about his own custom and what, and he's saying, look, and what he means it's not Sunnah, what he means is that the Prophet did not do it, and technically that is correct, he did not do it. It doesn't mean it's bid'ah by the way. Imam Malik is simply saying, it's no big deal, if you finish the Quran or not, no big deal. Uh, in the Hanafi school, it is a strongly encouraged Sunnah, and that's why generally speaking, uh, in the lands that follow the Hanafi Madhab, they have this notion that Taraweeh and finishing the Quran go hand in hand. And even in the Hanafi school, it is not a requirement. So please understand this point. Yes, the Hanafis encourage it, but the Malikis and Shafi'is say it's no big deal whether you finish the Quran or not, and that therefore it is much more common in the Shafi'i lands and whatnot that they might recite just uh, two ayat, three ayat, one ayat, and then go into ruku' just to make it easy for the people. Whereas generally speaking in our Hanafi lands, uh, there is a much more emphasis of finishing the whole Quran. But the point is given the circumstances, you should be aware that no scholar has ever said that it is necessary to finish the Quran in Taraweeh. If you're not able to do that, whatever you're able to do, even if you read, you know, the last juz amma, if you read, you know, even if you read technically the same surah in every single rak'ah, if you haven't memorized more, then you have done the Salat al-Taraweeh, no uh, problem. And uh, the, uh, the, as we already said, uh, the, 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 the concept of what time is best already explained this, that if you're praying publicly, then the jama'ah should be done right after Isha to make things easier. Likewise, if you're the father of the household and you want to do it for your family and they're not going to wake up at 3, 4 o'clock, then definitely do something. It's better than nothing. But if you are able to privately do something at the end of the night, and that is the last third of the night, how do you calculate the last third? The time of Maghrib and the time of Fajr. That is the beginning and end. Divide that into threes. And the last third is going to be that last third of the night. And that's typically in our time is going to be the last two, three hours before Fajr. That is going to be the, uh, the, uh, prime time for tahajjud or qiyamul layl that is the best time so this answers our first question and that is a brief summary of taraweeh and the quantity of rak'at and what should be recited uh, and the best timing all of and the history all of this has been done and now inshallah we move to the second question the second question and this I have been asked by many, many people. Um, Facebook and Twitter has been bombarding me with this question and it is on the minds of many of us. In light of the current circumstances, can we pray taraweeh in our houses while the imam is in the masjid or somewhere else and we have a live connection or a live feed via the internet? If the taraweeh is being broadcast live, can we tune in and can we stand in our own houses and pray as muqtadi, muqtadi means the one behind the imam, and take an imam that is not physically in front of us. Okay, this is the second question, a virtual, uh, a virtual taraweeh. There is no question that mainstream traditional fiqh would never allow this. And the reasons for this are self-evident and obvious. By definition, what does the word jama'ah mean? The word jama'ah means a congregation. The word jama'ah means physically coming together. And that is why by unanimous consensus, you know, of the four schools, I should say, uh, the people that are standing far apart cannot be considered to be one jama'ah. Now, what constitutes far apart? What constitutes the maximum distance between the muqtadi? The muqtadi is the one who's behind the imam and the imam. What is the maximum distance? Well, uh, the different madhabs have different, you know, uh, connotations in this regard. Uh, the Maliki madhab says that, you know, there's no problem if there's a river or a road uh, between uh, the, the sufuf and there's a, a large break or something. And there's some still sense of connection. Even if there's a river or a road between them, no problem. Uh, 
Imam al-Kasani in his famous book, Bada'i al-Sana'ah, which is a Hanafi book, one of the earliest Hanafi books, he says that the Hanafi position is that if there's a gap of two rows, then the jama'ah is broken. So any roughly 10 feet or so, I mean, I don't quote me on the 10 feet, but basically two rows, well, more than 10 feet if you want. So if there's that much of a distance, it is um, broken. Uh, the Hanbalis in their mashhur uh, position, they said that one should be within visual distance of the Imam. And Ibn Qudama says that even if you're not visual, but at least you can hear or see one of the rows. So even if it's a huge jama'ah and you cannot see the Imam, but wherever you are, you can see a row and that row is visible, you can hear them, then you can be connected. So the point is, each of these yani, madhabs is kind of sort of, in its own way, they're saying there's got to be a reasonable distance. And each one of them has a different opinion about what exactly is uh, reasonable. Now, when loudspeakers were introduced, uh, and this is back in the 50s and 60s, so some of our scholars then did become a little bit more you know, lax, that okay, even if you cannot see the imam, but still it is one connected group. And again, there was some uh, you know, controversy over what, what constitutes connected and what is reasonable. But still, nobody said that just because you can hear the imam very, very far away, uh, you can still pray uh, with the, uh, with the jama'ah. There has to be some sense of connectivity. When live TV broadcast was introduced, and this is in the Haramain, they began broadcasting the Taraweeh prayers live in the 1980s. This was when they began broadcasting for the very first time in the, in the mid-1980s. They started the Saudi Arabian television, they started broadcasting, uh, I'm not saying other countries, I'm talking about Mecca and Medina, I don't know other countries. Uh, Mecca and Medina was in the uh, mid to early 80s, they began broadcasting uh, uh, the live transmission. And so uh, the uh, people began asking that if we're in the same time zone, and we are in the Mecca time zone. People in Jeddah are two minutes apart. It's in the same time zone. Like when the Taraweeh starts, they can pray. The people of Mecca, they are not coming to the Haram. So they began asking uh, the senior scholars. And so uh, the council of senior scholars, the Hayat Kibarul Ulama, was asked a question that can we tune in to the live television broadcast on Saudi national television if we are in the same time zone? Obviously, nobody's saying if you're in Timbuktu, then you can do that. No, we mean something within the same time zone uh, from Mecca, that can we pray? And the uh, Council of Senior Scholars, they said that it is not permissible by unanimous consensus because it would not constitute a jama'ah. You're not physically in the vicinity of the uh, of the uh, haram. Uh, and that's something that they said is not allowed. And that's definitely standard uh, traditional interpretation. Now, having said that, Given the current circumstances that we are facing, there is no question that fiqh does allow, and this is something everybody knows, fine-tuning if the conditions are met and if the sharia allows for it. So the question is, can we, in light of current circumstances, rethink through this issue of jama'ah? Can we, in the spirit of having uh, taraweeh prayers, in the spirit of most people are not going to be praying the proper prayers anyway, and because we're not having for the first time in Islamic history, you know, masajid across the globe are shut down, we're not going to be having congregations. So in light of these extenuating circumstances, can we rethink through this issue and temporarily, not permanently, just in light of this year maybe even, just allow for uh, a jama'ah that is online or virtual. And I have been following many people across the globe, many scholars I look up to, many fiqh councils and hearing from them what they are saying. And a number of scholars have allowed this. Most famously, uh, yesterday, uh, Sheikh Muhammad Hassan Waladadu, one of the great uh, allamas in every sense of the term uh, alive, uh, Sheikh Dadu, he did uh, give a very explicit uh, uh, fatwa in which he said that it is permissible and he said that it is permissible only in light of current circumstances, only as an exception to keep the spirit alive. And he says this is a nazila issue, or it's an uh, issue that basically we're giving uh, in light of today's extenuating circumstance. And there are some other small voices as well. However, and I'm just saying this for information, however, that having been said, please be aware that as far as I know, to up until today that I'm giving you this lecture, as far as I know, no fiqh council, in any part of the world, as far as I know, has allowed 
online jama'ah. Not the European Council, not the American Muslim Jewish Association, not the Fiqh Council of North America that I sit upon, not any of the Fiqh Councils that are the uh, Majma' al-Fiqhi and others that are uh, senior councils around the globe. None of them have allowed this and they have all said that yes, true, at times we rethink through uh, fiqh and we can fine tune, but their perspective is having a jama'ah is not a necessity. So why rethink through the concept of a jama'ah when it is not a necessity? We rethink through when a necessity is being infringed, when something that is haram or halal, when a very big thing. As for taraweeh, if you pray at home, what's the big deal? If you pray by yourself, what's the big deal? Why do we have to rethink? That's their uh, philosophy. And uh, because of this, and uh, personally, and I have said this many, many times, that I don't feel comfortable personally uh, to give any position or fatwa that is unique. I never have in my life done uh, given any position that is uniquely my own in fiqh issues. Uh, in some areas of Islam is different, but definitely in fiqh, I do not consider myself to be a'udhu billah mujtahid mutlaq. I always follow those whom I look up to, and especially for our times, I've said this multiple times, I personally prioritize the fiqh councils for modern issues. And I have four or five fiqh councils that I look up to, and I myself am a member of one of them, the Fiqh Council of North America. The reason why I prefer councils is because you have multiple minds coming together. It's not just one. And you have the Majma' al-Fiqhi, you have the Majma' al-Rabit al-Alam, you have multiple that are global, and then you have regional. You have the European Fiqh Council that I personally look up to immensely, and it has a number of people that are good friends and colleagues of mine, and they're on that council here in America the American Muslim Jewish Association. I know almost everybody personally. I attend many times as well. And the Fiqh Council, of course, I'm on it. And these are the councils that are European and Western. These three in particular. I'm not saying there are not others. There are others as well. But to me personally, these are the ones that I'm in particular very well connected with. And I do look up to for Western Fatawa. And none of these councils have as of yet allowed this. And therefore, even if a few handful of scholars whom I personally know and admire have allowed it, I cannot find myself siding with them personally. If somebody wishes to follow that's their business, I cannot encourage it. And I, I find myself uh, hesitant to open this door uh, and I'm going to stick with what the majority have said in this regard. And that means that Jama'as cannot take place when you are miles and miles away from the Imam. There has to be physical proximity. And this is the position that I personally hold up until now. Now, if this were to change and some fiqh councils were to change their position, perhaps I might change as well uh, because I understand where Sheikh Waladadu and others are coming from and I see the perspective and at one level I am sympathetic. At the same time, I am cautious and I want to stick with uh, those that are more senior to me and also more in quantity. Not saying that Sheikh Dadu does, is he's definitely senior to many of us and he alone is like an ummah of ulama, but that's a different story altogether. So um, still I would say let's stick with the majority and not open this uh, door. And to the best of my knowledge here in Dallas as well, uh, and I'm on a, a group as well of, of uh, local imams and scholars, I don't think any of us as of yet, we have not opened this door and we will not be opening this door to the best of my knowledge. Now, Having said all of that, before I move to my final question, there's going to be three questions today. Having said all of that, there is one thing I'd like to put in the footnote. It is a scenario that I do not encourage at all. At the same time, it would be permissible according to the majority of ulama. It doesn't require radical ijtihad. It doesn't require rethinking through the formula. And I would not encourage this, but it is a concession that might be something that certain groups of people can avail themselves to. And that concession is that what is called in the classical books of fiqh, al-iqtida al-suri, or the outer uh, illusion of following the imam, where there is an illusion of following the imam, but it is an illusion you are not following the imam. And when do our classical books discuss this? Well, they discuss it in a number of scenarios of them. Uh, in the uh, well, let's just say one example that 
the Imam is somebody that you think you should not be praying behind. Maybe he's a very weird belief or whatnot, and yet you're in a public or he's the leader or he's the, the, the Muslim Khalifa or something or whatever it might be, and you think that what, for whatever reason, and they give some examples that your salah behind him is not valid. So this is called Al-Iqtida Al-Suri, where outwardly, your ruku' and sujood will be somewhat in sync with the rest of the people. But in reality, you are making a niyyah that you're praying your own salah. And if somebody were to look at you, he would assume that you are praying jama'ah. But in reality, you are praying your own salah. Now, and again, I'm, I'm just putting this as a footnote. So please, my position is don't open this door. However, if somebody really cannot recite the Qur'an, cannot and will not be praying taraweeh at all. They're not going to find any khushur. They really want to follow uh, somebody who is broadcasting live. It has to be a live broadcast in the same time zone. One way out could be that they do this iqtida suri, which means they pray their own taraweeh with their own arkan, and they are doing their own fatiha and everything they are doing as if they're independent. And they have the live recitation playing as well at the same time, such that when they recite Fatiha, the Imam is reciting Fatiha, then they can be quiet and listen to the recitation of the Imam, because you know it is not a rukun uh, in the Nafil Salah, according to any of the madhabs, to have another uh, prayer after the Fatiha, another surah after the Fatiha. If you just recite Fatiha, and then if you wanted to recite inna a'tina kal for example, in every rak'ah, then you listen to the Imam. So, and then when the Imam goes into Ruku'ah, you are not following, you're not a Muqtadi, you just happen to go into your own Ruku'ah. Then when the Imam goes into Qiyam, you just happen to go into Qiyam, and you roughly synchronize, but you are praying your own Salah, independent of your Niyyah, is independent, it's not behind the Imam. And you are praying your two, and the Imam is praying his two, but it just so happens that when he is reciting the Qur'an, you are listening to the Qur'an, and you are getting, you know, the, the Tilawah done. If this is done in some situations and scenarios, it's nothing wrong with this because you have done the salah, but there is no actual iqtida, you are not actually following the um, imam. And again, I would only think that this would be useful if certain groups of people, like somebody does not know anything from the Qur'an, or, and they just don't want to recite Surah Al-Ikhlas, all the 20 rak'at or 8 rak'at, or uh, somebody is not going to be motivated unless he's praying behind his regular imam, and it so happens that his imam is, is reciting yani, the taraweeh or live or whatnot. Otherwise, uh, this is not something that definitely should be encouraged if we're not going to go down the route of virtual uh, salahs, and that's not, as I said, we're not going down that route, uh, and Allah Azza wa knows best. We now get to the last question of today's, uh, today's uh, lesson. Today's halaqa, I should say. And it is a standard question. And it is something that doesn't require rethinking through. And that is, um, can we hold the mushaf in our hands when we pray Qiyamul Layl? Can we read from the mushaf our taraweeh? The answer to this question uh, realize we're talking about the nafil salahs, not uh, the fard. The taraweeh prayer is a nafil or sunnah, it is not fard because obligatory is something else. The answer to this question, it is actually very clear to the majority of scholars. Uh, in Sahih al-Bukhari, we have a hadith uh, or an athar of Aisha radiallahu anha, that Aisha would command her uh, freed slave, the Quran, uh, to lead them in salah, and the Quran, because he was not a, a hafid, he would recite from the Mus'haf. And this is in Sahih Bukhari. وَكَانَ يَقْرَأُ مِنَ الْمُصْحَفِ He would recite from the Mus'haf. And this is very explicit, very clear. And uh, this is something that is, you cannot get more explicit. And, and, and uh, you know, and it is in Sahih Bukhari, uh, even though it's in Mu'allaf form, but it is uh, Hassan Hadith. And that is that Aisha radiallahu anha commanded her Mawla, the Quran, during the nights of Ramadan to lead them in Salah. This is after the death of the Prophet sallallahu Aisha would not go uh, to pray in the masjid. She would pray in her house. And she had a freed slave, a servant who uh, would lead them in salah, but he did not had not memorized the Quran, so he would read from the mushaf, 
and this is something very explicit. Um, the famous scholar Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, and al-Zuhri died 129 Hijrah, and he is one of the greatest, if not the greatest scholars of the uh, Tabi'un. Taba Tabi'un is really his main generation. One of the greatest ulama of Islam, al-Zuhri. And uh, al-Zuhri was asked about a man who recites from the Mus'haf during Ramadan. And al-Zuhri, who met some of the students and the sons of the Sahaba. Az-Zuhri met some of the main sons of the Sahaba. Az-Zuhri said, كَانَ خِيَارُنَا يَقْرَؤُونَ فِي الْمُصْحَفِ The best amongst us, I remember them, they would read from the Mus'haf. This is Az-Zuhri saying this. So it was a well-known, well-accepted uh, habit that during the nights of Ramadan, when people would lead them in salah, they would hold the Mus'haf. And uh, in the Mudawwana, of Sahnun, which is one of the earliest books of Maliki Fiqh, and uh, the one who wrote it is the student of Imam Malik, and he said that I asked Imam Malik about this issue, Imam Malik said, so Imam Malik, and again, he is a person who is living in Medina, two generations after the Prophet Wasallam. Imam Malik said, there is no harm in carrying the Mus'haf for the Imam in Ramadan for the Nafil prayer, meaning for the Tahajjud, because Tahajjud is Nafil, yani Qayyam. <coughs> meaning a nafil here is that uh, not the fard prayer, so not to Isha. There is no harm for the imam to carry the mushaf, you know, in the nights of taraweeh, basically. This is Imam Malik explicitly saying, and that's the standard Maliki uh, madhab. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal was asked about this, and he said, لَا بَأْسَ أَنْ يُصَلِّيَ بِالنَّاسِ الْقِيَامِ وَهُوَ يَنْظُرُ فِي الْمُصْحَفِ there is no harm, there's no problem at all. It's not even makruh, nothing, no problem for the imam to carry the mushaf and he is leading the people in salah and he is looking at the mushaf. Again, this is for the, uh, for the taraweeh prayer. Again, we're not talking about the fard prayer. And uh, Imam al-Nawawi in his majmu'ah. So we talked about the Maliki madhab, Imam Malik is explicit. We talked about the Hanbali madhab, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal is explicit. And the greatest scholar of the Shafi'i madhab in the medieval times is Imam al-Nawawi. Imam al-Nawawi in his majmu'ah, he says that if he leads uh, the, the, from the Qur'an, from the mushaf, and he recites the Qur'an from the Mus'haf, regardless of whether he is a Hafid or not, it does not matter, and the Salah is valid and correct. So uh, he said that the Salah is going to be valid if the person leads from the uh, Mus'haf, there's no problem here. So this is the Shafi'i school, the Maliki school, and the Hanbali school, three of them. And I also quoted you, Aisha, our mother, عنها, way before any of these imams. And I quoted you, Ibn Shahab al-Zuhri, who was a well-traveled scholar. He had lived in Medina, he lived in Damascus. He met the sons of the Sahaba and he said, we all used to do this, but the greatest people I met, they would do this. So it is something that the majority of the ummah has accepted. Obviously, I have left one school and that is the school that um, uh, is the strictest in this regard. And we respect all of the schools, no problem with that. But you should be aware that these schools uh, exist and they have their differences and of course the school that is left is the one school that is the strictest in this regard and that is the Hanafi uh, school and the Hanafi school uh, generally speaking they were reluctant to open this door Imam Al-Kasani in his famous book Bada'i'u Sana'i' and by the way I have to say this just uh, Bada'i'u Sana'i' uh, Imam Al-Kasani died 587 I want to say 587 Hijrah and Imam Al-Kasani was a great student of Imam al-Samarqandi. Uh, and uh, Imam al-Samarqandi had written a book of Hanafi fiqh. And Imam al-Kasani was his student. And so Imam al-Kasani, he wrote uh, what is considered to be one of the greatest classics of the Hanafi school called Bada'i al-Sana'i. And he presented it to his teacher uh, uh, as, a, as a commentary to the book that his teacher, al-Samarqandi, had written. And this teacher was so impressed with the book Subhanallah, this became a joke for later Hanafis and it's a true story. He said, this book I will consider it to be the mahar for my daughter's hand in marriage. And he gave his daughter in marriage to his main student and he said the mahar of the, the marriage is going to be this book, subhanAllah. So the book, Bada'i al-Sana'a, became the mahar for the marriage uh, of Imam al-Kasani, subhanAllah. Those were different types of mahar. I don't know if any of uh, our current sisters would accept a mahar to be written a multi-volume book of Hanafi <laughs> fiqh. Anyway, uh, jokes aside, what was I saying? Um, 
Who was I saying? Bada'i al-Sana'a of Kasani. Yes, so uh, Imam al-Kasani writes in his Bada'i al-Sana'a, uh, he mentions uh, from Abu Hanifa, uh, and I, the reason I say this is I could not find it in Al-Mabsut, which is an earlier book, but uh, Imam al-Kasani, he writes that Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala, considered the salah to be batil, null and void, if somebody held the mushaf. Okay, so the Hanafi school, Imam Abu Hanifa was explicit. If you hold the Mus'haf, then the Salah is batil, null and void. Now, this became the standard position of the Hanafi school. It is what the Hanafis call the Muftabihi or the Fatwa that is given. It is the standard position and that is why our Hanafi brethren, uh, may Allah bless them and, 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 and grant them good in this world and the Akhirah. Generally speaking, in their subcultures, the concept of carrying a Mus'haf is alien to them. And if you go to the Shafi'i cultures, the Madiki cultures, the Hanbali cultures, it is very common in the Knights of to find people carrying the Mus'haf, no uh, problem. That having been said, and I'm not going to interfere within the intricacies of the Hanafi Madhab, as I have said, I am uh, more familiar with the Hanbali school, that is the school I, I typically follow in my personal life. Uh, but that having been said, the Hanafi should be aware that the two famous scholars, uh, students of Abu Hanifa, uh, uh, the uh, Abu Yu, uh, Qadi Abu Yusuf, and Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, they are called the Sahibain, or the Sahiban, the two main disciples. The both of them, they disagreed with their teacher and mentor Abu Hanifa on this issue, rahimahullah ta'ala, and they said that if a person were to carry the Mus'haf, the Salah is not batil. But they did say that it is makru, it should be avoided. But it is not batil. Uh, and later ulama, they extracted reasons for this and they said that there are two reasons that we can find in the Hanafi school. The first of them, there's too much motions or harakah. And as you know, during salah, you should have minimal amount of extra motions. And the second, they said, there is an element of imitation or tashabbuh for other uh, religious rituals. And fair enough, that's that's their extrapolation. Uh, but yani, others might say that if you're carrying an iPhone, and you're just holding it, and you're just, it's not really tashabbuh, um, sorry, it's not really too much harakah uh, per se. Uh, or to get out of the harakah issue, yani, I'm just saying, yani, think about it. If you were to have a mushaf open on a stand, a very large mushaf, and there's a page here and a page here, and you're not touching anything, and you're simply looking at this page and reading, and then you go into ruku, then you stand up, then you look at this page, then you read. Then between the taslims, after the taslim, you pay, turn the page. I'm just saying, yani, not trying to cause any issues, but uh, yani, if you want to follow the madhab, no problem. Um, that's, that's fine. That is the muftabihi position. Let me just say though that many of my modern Hanafi scholars, friends uh, uh, of our times, uh, quite a number of them, I know for a fact that they say to their congregations that, look, that's the, the mu'tamad or the, the, the standard position, but especially given in our circumstances and whatnot, a number of Hanafi scholars, especially in light of COVID-19 and the lockdown, they're saying, you know what, like, let's follow uh, Imam uh, Abu Yusuf and uh, Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani's position that the salah is, is you know, sahih, it is valid to do that. Uh, but in any case, that is your position, what you want to follow. I'm just telling you that this is one position, the majority of the other scholars have said there is no problem in a normal circumstance. How about now? Even more so, you may pick up a mushaf or in our case, an iPhone or whatever it is, just any, you know, have the, the, the app on and you may uh, read it. It is enough as salah anyway. And enough as salah, more motions are allowed than a fard salah anyway. It's not anything that, you know, this is the standard. But anyway, if you want to follow a position within your school, then alhamdulillah, I'm not going to ever, ever, ever criticize following a standard madhab if you stick to that madhab consistently. But if you want my uh, humble opinion, then really there is no problem. The point of taraweeh is to read long that's the goal of taraweeh and that's why Imam Ahmad and others they explicitly said Imam Malik they explicitly said long qiyams and short sajdas are better than uh, than short qiyams and long sajdas for taraweeh we don't necessarily want to make the sajdas long we want to make the, 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 the reciting long and we want to read as much Quran as possible how is that going to happen if you're not a hafid or even if you are and your hifd is weak and you're not going to leading in them, you know, there's very few people whose hifd is that strong that they can read, you know, uh, half a juz or a juz. And that's why we admire and respect our hifd so much that they are able to do this. Otherwise, most average hifd, uh, they are not able to do uh, that quickly. They're going to take a long time. And uh, that's why this concession is given that you may just read from the mushaf. And suppose you are not a hafil, 
then in this case, you may read what you're familiar with. Let's say Juz'amma or Juz'tabarak or whatever. You may read from that, no problem, insha'Allah ta'ala. Uh, and with this, insha'Allah, just a final uh, reminder that really the purpose of all of today's Q&A was to uh, get us into the spirit and to remind us of the great necessity, really, of praying the Qiyamul Layl or the Taraweeh during this upcoming month. And to rediscover the original spirit of Qiyamul Layl and Ramadan like our Prophet and like the Sahaba themselves. They didn't pray Taraweeh in his lifetime the way we do. Yes, in Umar al-Khattab's lifetime. But by the way, even then, Umar al-Khattab himself would pray at home. Aisha would pray at home. They would pray at home because they understood praying at home to be better than praying in Jama'ah. Now, in this month, because of COVID-19, we're all praying at home. And because of this, let us, inshaAllah ta'ala, Give extra attention, extra energy. Let us rediscover the spirit of Ramadan. Let us rediscover the spirit of Qiyamul Layl. Let us pray if we can privately. And if we're praying with our families, no problem. There's also some barakah and good in that. But even if we pray with our families, let's also try to pray uh, towards the end of the night. And let us make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he lifts this uh, communal punishment and adab from us, that he lifts the waba and bala, that he lifts this issue that we are facing now, and that we can resume our lives uh, back to normal, having appreciated uh, all of these blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. And inshallah ta'ala, I will see you in our next lecture. Uh, please don't forget to uh, donate to our masjid. Our masjid is going through uh, all of the masajid across um, uh, the Western world, and especially in America, as you know, we are all facing uh, crises because of this uh, issue. So please uh, give whatever you can uh, to your local masjid and uh, to our masjid as well because we want to continue these programs. Jazakumullahu khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shahr Ramadan al-lazhi unzila fihi al-Qur'an hudan lil-nasi wa bayinatim min al-huda wal-furqan. فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمُ الشَّهْرَ فَلْيَصُمْهُ وَمَنْ كَانَ مَرِيضًا أَوْ عَلَى سَفَرٍ فَعِدَّةٌ مِنْ أَيَّامٍ أُخَرٍ يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرَ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْعُسْرَ وَلِتُكْمِلُوا الْعِدَّةَ وَلِتُكَبِّرُوا اللَّهَ عَلَى مَا هَدَاكُمْ وَلَعَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ